listening to an audio sermon from Harvest Bible Chapel, Kelowna. For more information about our church, please visit harvestkelowna.ca. You can take your Bibles and turn to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5 is where we continue on in our series here, Life in the Kingdom. And ushers are coming forward with Bibles, and we would love for everyone to have a copy of God's Word in their hand this morning. So if you don't have a Bible and would want to follow along, just to ask for one of those Bibles, and they will give that to you. And you can even take that Bible home with you if you do not have a Bible at home, as we believe there's power in the Word of God, and, and God meets His people in and through the Word of God and we cannot ignore it. We need to be um, men and women and boys and girls and young people of the Word, and so we're fired up about the Word, and that's why I love it when we say, you open your Bibles when you hear the page, pages turning or you hear the, the, the phones or the, the iPads clicking or whatever it might be as you're getting tuned into Matthew chapter 5, and we'll be looking at that in just a moment. A few weeks ago, a number of us were in Ontario for a conference, a Stand Firm conference, and the night before we were due to fly home, I thought, oh, it was late, it was, you had a late night, and, and, and I FaceTimed Charlotte and our son Nate, and, and uh, was getting ready for bed, and thought, oh, I better do my, my online check-in for the airplane, just so that I could get my seat and, and make sure everything was all well taken care of, so that I could go and enjoy the last day of the conference, and then get a ride to the airport and fly back home. And so I went to go do the online check-in and as I was doing that for some reason I kept hitting the enter button and it wasn't doing the final process and it would just say not valid or it was giving me some error sign and I thought oh what what's the problem here and I wasn't you know I tried it a number of times and and then all of a sudden I, this thought kind of hit my uh, went into my head and thought I better check my actual ticket and so I went online and checked the ticket and the date that I had selected was not for September 26th, but October 26th. And all of a sudden, my first thought, no, not a month in Ontario. No, I cannot do that. You know, that would just be, I mean, I don't even believe in purgatory, but that's maybe what, I don't know, I didn't even, you know, it was just like, this can't be happening. And you ever have it that when you realize something like that, you start to feel your heartbeat in your brain? You ever have that where all of a sudden it's like throbbing, it's like, oh no, what am I going to do? And, and that thought about living in Ontario for a month or them having to put up with me for a month, maybe that's more the way it should be. And, and, and then I, I quickly went online and thought, well, how much would it be to just buy a ticket for, to go home to Kelowna, you know, on, on Wednesday night, just as I had planned and, and the way that I thought I had, and it was going to be one way $660. And I'm like, no, this cannot be. And I knew that you'd be penalized for this kind of thing. And so I quickly texted Doris and Carrie, who both both work for WestJet, which I'm so thankful, and uh, with some guidance there and a phone call, it only cost me $37 to, to book my plane ticket for the original flight home that I was hoping for so I didn't have to stay in Ontario for a month. But I don't know if you've ever had experiences like that where you hear something, you read something, or you see something, and all of a sudden it's like, no, this cannot be right, this cannot be happening, and then to find out in reality, yes, it is right, it is true, it is happening, and you're like, no, no, this cannot be. Well, this morning, the sermon that, or the passage we're going to be looking at, as Jesus would have been speaking this sermon to the crowd of people, and even for us today as we would hear it, first of all, we would hear some alarming things or some, some very teachable and very important things in his teaching, but then there's especially one statement at the end that he makes that would provide for the crowd then, and even for us today, a little bit of that, no, this cannot be. What is he talking about? 
Well, the Sermon on the Mount started with the Beatitudes as we started in the month of June, working through each one of those eight Beatitudes where Jesus describes in detail the inner character of a true follower of Christ. Now, it's just not simply about praying a prayer and just, you know, I'm in and that's it and then I'm good. It's about the inner character and, and, and we went through those one by one about what a true follower of Christ looks like and the inner character that is growing and developing. And, and then we looked at a few weeks ago those two brilliant metaphors being salt and light to show that as this inner character is growing in our lives, that salt and light will be our influence, that we will have an influence on the world around us, a preserving and, and a life-giving influence and impact on the world. We don't run and hide and live in some sort of shelter and just wait for Christ to return or for us to die, that we are to be out in the world and, and having an influence and illuminating the light of Christ. But then as we get to verse 17, where we're going to pick things up today, Jesus is speaking to his, his disciples with his eyes on the multitude, and, and, and here he is on the Sea of Galilee, or on the side of the mountain, overlooking the Sea of Galilee, and as he is no doubt saying these words, there is a lot of thoughts and a lot of kind of concern, no doubt, in the crowd by what he has to say. And I'm sure people were thinking, well, that can't be right. That can't be right. And just take a listen as we read this here this morning to set things up. And so starting in verse 17 of Matthew chapter 5. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven." For I tell you, unless, and here's where all of a sudden the eyebrows would have gone up and blood pressure no doubt would have started to, to go through uh, the roof here in, 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 the, in the minds and the hearts of people. Listen to what Jesus says in verse 20. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And no doubt these people are hearing this and saying, there's no hope of heaven for me. This is incredible. What is he saying here? And so this morning, I encourage you to write this down because this is important what Jesus has to say. This morning, we are going to see four statements that Jesus makes about the importance of God's word and our salvation. This is important, folks. This is so important that we understand this. Because... It is so important that it could be damning for our souls if we get this wrong, as well as damaging to our discipleship if we don't have the right handle on this. And God's word is serious, and this is a serious passage. And so four statements that Jesus makes, and the first one is, Jesus is for the Old Testament. Jesus is for the Old Testament. Jesus has just finished the Beatitudes and, 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 and already mentioned that. And no doubt some of those who were listening, the religious leaders listening, the disciples and the crowd that were listening, were, were starting to think, well, this Messiah, this Jesus, uh, this miracle man, um, is he advoca advocating overthrowing the Old Testament? Is it no longer needed? After all, his first opening statement in the Beatitudes said, blessed or approved by God are people who 
are spiritually, are, are those who are spiritually impoverished, the, the poor in spirit, he says. Those are the ones that will inherit the kingdom of heaven. He's kind of changing everything up, it would seem here. And so is he coming now and is Jesus going to abolish the law? And Jesus, being God, has an insight and understanding into what people are thinking. And so he knows automatically. He says, do not think. Because why did he say that? Because he knew they were thinking that. They were thinking about what's his view? What's his view about the law? What does he have to say about the Old Testament and the prophets? We're heading into an election season here and we see all the signs up and different things and as you go and as you read in the papers or online and you try to figure out what does this politician stand for, whether it's for the school board or whether it's for city council or for our mayor and we want to know what, is, what are their thoughts when it comes to the bridge, what, how about with homelessness, how about in areas of taxation and we want to know their platform, we want to know what they stand for. Just in the same way that people were no doubt wondering where does Jesus stand when it comes to the Old Testament? And that question is for us today. Where do we stand when it comes to the Old Testament? And Jesus is saying, I haven't come to abolish the law. He says, don't think it. Don't think this. I know you're thinking it, but don't think of it. There's a natural propensity in each one of us to take the path of least resistance, isn't there? I mean, especially in your kids, right? Or isn't it amazing the way they can find the loopholes, you know, when, when, when they know they're supposed to clean their room and they don't clean their room and then you come to them and say, hey, you didn't clean your room. And you say, well, you didn't tell me when I had to clean it, you know, and, you know, or I mean, we do that when we're driving, right? We know there's certain speed limits, but we like to push the limit a, a little bit or a lot, or maybe you're one of those uh, strange people that goes under the limit and drives other people crazy, or, you know, we know there's these stop signs, but we think a rolling stop is good enough, and, and we're always finding these little loopholes and different things like that. I think of a friend of mine who years ago ended up in jail. He was arrested and put into jail for a number of weeks, even before his trial even started, because of the illegal storage and transportation of some firearms. I mean, we're in Redneck, Alberta. It's just the thing you do, right? Well, he ended up getting caught. And because of a comedy of errors and a number of things that happened that was just so unbelievable, he ended up in jail for a number of weeks, then was released, and then he had to go to trial. He had his lawyer, after he got out of the remand center, he had his lawyer came to him and, and said, listen, we can have this whole thing tossed out of court because what they did... They, they did some things that weren't right in your arrest and everything that took place. We can have this whole thing tossed out on technicalities. He was looking for the loopholes. That's what lawyers do. That's what we do so oftentimes. You know what ended up happening with this guy? And I give him great credit and I have a great respect for him. He said, no, I broke the law. I broke the law and I need to, to face the punishment that I would possibly deserve because of this. And he ended up receiving a year of house arrest, having to wear one of those collars uh, around his, uh, on, his on his ankle so that they could track. He could go to work, he could go to church, and he could go grocery shopping, and that was it for a year. He was confined in that kind of way. But we're always looking for the loopholes, aren't we? We're always looking for a way out. We're always wanting to know, is there a way that we can kind of diminish certain things? And, 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 and that's what even people were, were looking at here for Jesus. Whether it was people then or even for us today, there can be even so much confusion, and there is great confusion even today about the Word of God, and especially even the Old Testament. A very real possibility then, even today, is the temptation to downplay, ignore, or or tweak the importance of the Word of God in certain areas in our lives, and especially in the Old Testament. We like to make it a little easier, a little more nice, uh, a little more 
easier to swallow or understandable or, or simply to think that we can start to think, well, there's certain things that are no longer relevant and so I just can ignore it and I don't need to pay attention to it. There was an ancient heresy that started just probably a number of decades after Matthew would have written this gospel in AD 70. They believe that he wrote this and in the second century there was a church churchman by the name of Marcion who promoted his own alternative brand of Christianity. And what he did is he made his own Bible. He, he took and he cut and pasted the parts he liked. He, he got rid of the parts he didn't like, and it meant the whole Old Testament was, God, was gone. And then he removed other things from the New Testament, including this passage when Jesus talked about the importance of the Old Testament here in verses 15 to 17. Got rid of that. And so anything that he didn't like and, and just didn't feel was uh, palatable for him and, and for his followers, he just got rid of it and had his own version of the Bible. And he refused to accept, and, and this was a big thing for him. And folks, this spirit is very much alive today within the Christian community. He refused to accept that the God in the Old Testament, the God of wrath that we see in the Old Testament was the same God of love that we see in the New Testament. And he couldn't, just couldn't justify it. So it was just easier to, than to explain it or understand it or believe it by faith just to get rid of it. And so he rejected much of the Old Testament or the entire Old Testament and much of the New Testament. This spirit, as I said, is very much alive today in the modern-day Marcionites, I guess you could call them, treating the Word of God in a similar fashion. Not just the Old Testament, but even the New Testament. Even aspects of the Gospels that uh, end up becoming more like a smorgasbord, picking out certain parts that we like and leaving the stuff that we don't like. You may have heard this term before, and it's a, a movement that is quite popular these days, red-letter Christians. And these are people who just, just promote, for the most part, not quite all of the red-letter teachings of Jesus. They follow and emphasize what Jesus said, you know, the red letters in our Bible. And I don't know if you have a Bible like, like that in the New Testament. You, you may have that. My Bible happens to be like that here, that I have here this morning. You have the red letters, and those are the words that, that Jesus spoke. And so these are the words that red-letter Christians follow, and you don't have to follow really anything else. You know, we want a Jesus who never focused on sin, or especially on sexual sin, or never judged anyone, but accepts all people unconditionally and allows you to pursue the life and the lifestyle that you want to pursue. Just keep your own lifestyle and practices and still love Jesus. And when it came to words about Jesus and holiness or hell or repentance or obedience, or his role is coming as one day as final judge, simply get dismissed by people. I told you in August, in, in, in the message we were at the end of August, uh, as we were looking in the Beatitudes, that uh, a church here in Western Canada, and sadly there are many and more of them becoming like this on their website, where they don't even, they are very upfront. They don't believe in hell. They don't believe a God of love would send people to hell. They're, they're going against what God's word has to say. And, and they end up stating on their website that those who actually believe in hell are, are believing some ancient heresy and we are false teachers if we believe in that sort of thing. And sadly, these teachers, these churches are sending people to the hell that they claim doesn't even exist. And that's a great danger. Another website just saw this this past week again, church here in Western Canada. 
And they state, and, and this is what they say on their website. I, I, I quote this. We accept the scriptures as the word of God and the rule for faith, doctrine, and practice. That sounds good. We can align with that. That sounds really, really good. But you look at another page on their website, and it's a whole page devoted to their ex explaining and their full acceptance of lifestyles and relationships that the, that the Bible clearly calls sin. And you just think, how do they balance this? It's just crazy. And so we must be careful that we don't do the same kind of thing. You say, well, I wouldn't go to that level, but hey, maybe we do it in the little areas. By saying, hey, I know God's word says this, but I'm going to do it anyways. I know God's word calls me to a different standard, but you know what? I just, I've had a rough day. I've had a rough week. They got what they deserved. It's, it's about me right now. I just need a little me time. And, you know, and, and so we take and we ignore, we justify, or we explain away parts of the Bible that we find very hard to live and to follow or doesn't line up with our fleshly desires. I do that. I do it. And what we need to see is that we need to have a growing high standard when it comes to the Word of God. Tim Keller, I love this quote. He said this, it was on Twitter a number of years ago. He said, if your God never disagrees with you, you might, you might just be worshiping an idealized version of yourself. <laughs> if your God never disagrees with you, you might be worshiping an idealized version of yourself. We make ourselves into the little G gods. Again, folks, this is serious when it comes to the word of God and our understanding and our respect of the Word of God, as I said before, to hold a lesser view of Scripture could very well be damning for one's soul and at least very damaging for our discipleship. God's Word does indeed agree with us time and time again because it exposes our selfishness, our pride, our sin. Martin Luther, he wrote this. He said, we are cast down. We are humbled by the word so that we might run to Christ. The law of God humbles us, not to our destruction, but for our salvation. For God woundeth that he may heal. The law drives us to the depths of despair. We see God's standard and we see we haven't reached it and we cannot reach it. And it leads us to God's urgent or it leads us to an urgent need and understanding for God's grace in our lives. Yes, folks, there are difficult passages of God's word to understanding, uh, understand. I, I was thinking we could have, could have picked out some of those passages in the book of Leviticus, for example. There are some things there like, really? What does that mean? And I don't understand that. That's gross, or that's weird, or that's strange, or whatever it is. There are hard parts of the Bible to understand. I recognize that, and, and, um, and, and I don't deny that. And it's not always easy to reconcile at times what we see in the Old Testament or what we see in the Word of God with what is going on in our world or what is going on in, in and through history. Yes, there are challenging times, and these are challenging times that we live in, but it also brings us hope to the Word of God as we study it and as we read it. And here Jesus is saying, and he just wants to be very clear before the people, listen, I have not come to abolish the law or the prophets. Jesus is for the Old Testament. He's for the entire Old, Old Testament. And the Old Testament, as we're going to see, is also for us today. 
it is relevant for us. And so that's the first thing. Jesus is for the Old Testament. Second of all, Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Testament. You see that in the last part of verse 17. It says, I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Testament. The Old Testament is all about Jesus. Jesus is the point of the, of the Bible, of the Old Testament. Every prophecy, every law, every sacrifice, the entire sacrificial system pointed to Jesus. And what we see in the Old Testament, which are shadows, these sacrifices and, and, and all of these ceremonies are mere shadows, but Jesus is the substance of those shadows. The entire Old Testament is waiting for and points to Jesus. In the Old Testament, we see Jesus is promised. In the New Testament, we see the fulfillment of that promise being Jesus. Over 300 prophecies that were fulfilled regarding his birth, where it would be, regarding his life, how he would live here on this earth, and even his death, talking about how he would die here. Over 300 prophecies fulfilled. The Bible is just not some collection of 66 books or 66 writings. It is one book that declares one message, and that is Jesus. From Genesis to Revelation, it's all about Him. We have available at the church, and we'll have them next week, or available this, next, this week at the church office, this, this book called God's Big Picture, and it just winds the thread of Jesus that you can see from the Old Testament to the New Testament. Promises given, promises fulfilled. And if you want to pick one of these up, we have a good number of these that you can get one of these and, and you can study it and it's just an amazing study to see how everything in the Bible is about Jesus and how Jesus is the fulfillment. Here are some ways that the Old Testament points to Jesus. Just be encouraged by this as you hear this. Jesus is the perfect judge that we see in the book of Judges. See many imperfect judges but Jesus was the perfect judge bringing divine and perfect justice. Jesus is the perfect prophet speaking forth the word of God. Jesus is the perfect high priest, the perfect mediator who stands between man and God, bridging the gap as he did once for all, as he died on the cross for our sin. And to all who believe upon him in this way and turn from their sin, we have our sins canceled. We have eternity secured all because of Jesus. Jesus is the perfect king. We see many imperfect, many wicked kings in the Old Testament. We see some good ones as well, but we see many wicked and imperfect ones. But Jesus is the perfect king, the one who will one day come and establish his perfect kingdom here on this earth. Jesus is the perfect sacrifice, covering our sins once for all. No more animals, rituals, sacrifices, because as John the Baptist said, he is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Just want to read for you this. It's just such an encouraging thing. And if you want a copy of it, I can, can, can uh, direct you to this this week. You can just send me an email or a text and can send it to you. Jesus in every book of the Bible. We're just going to cover them. We're not going to go through 66 books here this morning. We're just going to go through the Old Testament. In Genesis, Jesus is the seed of the woman. In Exodus, he is the Passover lamb. In Leviticus, he is our high priest. In Numbers, he is the pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night. In Deuteronomy, he is the prophet like unto Moses. In Joshua, he's the captain of our salvation. In Judges, he is the judge and lawgiver. In Ruth, he is our kinsman redeemer. 
In 1st and 2nd Samuel, he is our trusted prophet. In Kings and Chronicles, he is our reigning king. In Ezra, he is the rebuilder of the broken down walls of human life. In Esther, he is our Mordecai. In Job, he is our ever-living redeemer. In Psalms, he is our shepherd. In Proverbs and Ecclesiastes, he is our wisdom. In the Song of Solomon, he is our loving bridegroom. In Isaiah, he is the prince of peace. In Jeremiah, he is the righteous branch. In Lamentations, he is our weeping prophet. In Ezekiel, he is the wonderful four-faced man. In Daniel, he is the fourth man in the fiery furnace. In Hosea, he is the faithful husband forever married to the backslider. In Joel, he is the baptizer with the Holy Ghost and fire. In Amos, he is our burden bearer. In Ob- Obadiah, he is, the, he is mighty to save. In Jonah, he is our great foreign missionary. In Micah, he is the messenger of beautiful feet. In Nahum, he is the avenger of God elect. In Habakkuk, he is God's evangelist, crying, revive thy work in the midst of the years. In Zephaniah, he is our savior. In Haggai, he is the restorer of God's lost heritage. In Zechariah, he is the fountain open up in the house of David for sin and for uncleanness. In Malachi, he is the son of righteousness, rising with healing in his wings. And then it goes on to see how we see Jesus in the New Testament. And and just a wonderful description. It's all about Jesus. It's all about him, all the Old Testament. And and, and listen to this. I, I, I like what this person said. There lies in the Old Testament what is the shadow, the echo, the beating pulse of a rescued people, a new law, the prophecy fulfilled, the perfect sacrifice, the hero who sets the captive free. Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Testament. And thirdly, all of God's word is permanent and relevant to us today. Look at in verse 18 and 19, Jesus said, For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass away from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. See, the Old Testament is the word of God. All of it, not just the easy parts. Not just the good and the nice stories, but the difficult, the messy, and the uncomfortable parts. And notice Jesus is saying, don't mess with the word. Don't mess with the Old Testament. Don't cut and paste. Don't remove a hyphen or an apostrophe or anything like that. And and he says, don't change an iota, don't change a dot. You think, okay, what's he talking about? What's an iota and a dot? Well, an iota was something like an apostrophe. You know how many iotas there are in the Hebrew language in the Old Testament? Someone counted, someone had way too much time on their hands. 66,420 of them in the Old Testament alone. And Jesus said, don't touch one of them. Keep it in place. All of God's word stands true. All of God's word is the word of God. Don't touch it until it is all accomplished. And when will it all be accomplished? When Jesus returns. When we are at home with Jesus for eternity forever. There are still Old Testament prophecies that have not yet been fulfilled, so don't touch it. Because heaven and earth have not yet passed away. The second coming, Jesus will return, establish his eternal kingdom. God's word is permanent. God's word is permanent. Let's not touch it. Let's not mess with it. Leave it as is. And we submit to it as the word of God. 
but it's also relevant for us today. God's word is so relevant. 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, you just might want to write down that passage, 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. says, all scripture is God-breathed, is breathed out by God, and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Notice it says, all, underline all in your Bible, because when it says all, he means all scripture. Old Testament, New Testament, every iota, every dot. It's all the word of God. And the purpose of the Old Testament, once again, as we see, reveals Jesus. It reveals the power, the greatness, the holiness of our God and exposes every one of us as sinners. I wonder if we started to work through a list of the Ten Commandments and then the other 603 commandments that you see in the Old Testament. How far along in the process would it take to reveal that you have fallen short? None of us would get out of the Ten Commandments. Not one of us would make it out of there, let alone the other 603 commandments that we see. But see, the law exposes each one of us as sinners is falling short. As well, it shows the seriousness of sin the seriousness of sin before a holy and a perfect God. But the law also prepares a heart for salvation, for a savior. And it all points to Jesus. And so there is beauty and there is a depth in reading and understanding and marinating ourselves in the word of God. And that's why we preach it and we proclaim it. We teach it. We learn it. That's why our small groups are about studying the word of God and how it applies to our lives we don't just preach in order to, 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 to preach the felt needs. We preach the word of God and allow the text of God's word to shape us and to meet our needs. And to, we're not just about engaging our feelings in and through the word of God, but it will do that. But as we concentrate on his word, we open the book, we study it, we work through it line by line, chapter by chapter, book by book so oftentimes. Every part of the word of God matters. I love even for our children in, in our small groups, we study the Word of God. And this fall, we're doing a, a, a book study uh, on 23 things every Christian should know. And so it's going to involve some reading, some homework. That's a good thing. It will involve looking up Bible passages and doing some homework in advance. That's a good thing. As we study, as we learn together, as we learn individually and then come together in our groups and learn together from the Word of God. I love it for our kids. They get the Gospel Project Sunday mornings here at Harvest. It's not just simply teaching the kids some great stories out of the Bible and kind of, uh, you know, like, oh, let's teach about Joseph. Oh, let's teach about Moses. I have great stories. But what the, pro, what the whole curriculum is all about is a chronological study throughout the word of God from Genesis to Revelation. And it's going to take our kids three years to get through it. Four or five. Or four or five because of some of the delays that we have. And, and so we see this Christ-centered content on every study that the kids do. We see every scripture. The kids get to see in their time together in Harvest Kids how every scripture, every story points to Jesus. How Jesus is the fulfillment. Jesus is the king. Folks, this book is our message. It is our mission. And we are called to make disciples. You see that. You hear that. We talk about that. And, and, and if you've been in church very long, we, we know the great commission to go and make disciples. 
And that cannot happen and won't properly happen without the Word of God. Our church, we're not primarily, we're not about social events or, or social justice issues or politics or poverty or environmental causes. All of those things can be good things, but that's not what we're called to be a part of. Jesus said, I will build my church. And our call is not for us to build the church, it's for him to build the church. And our calling is to be faithful to the mission that we have been given, using our time, our treasure, our talents, in a way that would bring honor and glory to him. And what is the call that God has for us? To know him and to proclaim him. To know and to proclaim the one who is building his church. And how do we make disciples? It is by grace through faith. It is teaching folks that it is not by do's and don'ts. It's by God's grace that we receive by faith. Paul said in Romans 10, faith comes by hearing and hearing through preaching, through books. No, what, what, what does hearing come through? Through the word of God, through the word of God. There's no other way. We have one message and we must be faithful to this message. And at times the world will hate this message. When we speak the word of God to others and we point people what God's word has to say and here's the lifestyle that they're living, they're going to hate us. They're not going to necessarily like us at times. It's not going to agree well with those. And at times, in the same way, God's word isn't always going to agree well with, with me. But we come in humility and with desired obedience to the word of God. And for some people, the word of God will condemn them. And to those who believe and receive his grace and his mercy, it will bring life. That's why we're about the word. We must have one message, and the message is Jesus. We must be rooted in his book, in the word of God. I grew up in school, like probably many of you, celebrating November 11th Remembrance Day, a day where we take time to remember those fallen soldiers who served in the Canadian military over the years. And I remember making wreaths, reciting poems, singing songs at assembly, wearing poppies, getting poked by poppies, poking other people with poppies. Remember hearing the story how my great-grandfather died in the Battle of Vimy Ridge. And thinking, wow, that's pretty cool. But it really didn't impact me very much when, you know, year after year, Remembrance Day services, and as I got a little older, it was like, whew, day off of... Day off of school, day off of work. This is a good thing. I kind of like this. A holiday, a day a little later on to, hey, that's the day you get your Christmas lights up. And if you're strange, maybe even your Christmas tree. You know, and, uh, or not strange, I mean, you're just kind of rushing things a little bit. Until we moved to Alberta, where we moved into this little town that had a lot of military personnel living in it because it was right close to the Edmonton Garrison, a very large military base. As I was new in town as the pastor in this um, small town, the, some of the members from the, the Legion came and asked if I would be the padre for the, the, the Royal Canadian Legion there in the town. And I thought, sure, no problem, that'd be cool. And some interaction with some, some of the Legion members might be kind of cool. And, and uh, they said, oh, and one responsibility is you have to speak at the Remembrance Day service. I thought, great, no problem. And I remember going to our first Remembrance Day service, 
And I was expect, hey, community remembrance day service, it's a holiday, everyone's gonna be sleeping in, eating breakfast, taking it easy. I thought, you know, it'd be a crowd of just, you know, a few Legion members and a few others who kind of like Canada a little bit. And I remember being shocked walking in and the gym was packed. And along the sides of the gym were lined military personnel from our community. And all of a sudden, I started to see the grandeur and the seriousness and the cost and the sacrifice that many people had made. It started to become personal to me. And then there was the, the, the peacekeeping efforts in Bosnia. Then there was the Gulf War, Afghanistan. And soldiers locally started to come home, some of them in body bags. And some of them came home physically, but they didn't come home emotionally and started to see the cost of this kind of thing. And it is even still something to this day, even though we've moved from that community, that we uphold very much, even still taking time to remember the sacrifice and the cost of our freedom. And it's when we look at these kind of things in a very personal way, it becomes more real in our lives. And folks, the same is so true when it comes to the Word of God. When we get personal with the Word of God, and as we study it, and as we learn it, and we get to know it, there's a greater, deeper appreciation for it and for what ultimately Christ has done for us when we understand the law and what it means and its demands and how Jesus Christ met them all. John Piper, you said, don't just say, I read my Bible. The devil knows the Bible by heart. It's about lingering there, loving the truth, and pleading with the Lord to open the eyes of your heart. Oh, that we would be transformed by the living word of God. That we would linger in the word. We would take time and allow the appreciation and the greatness and the grandeur. And even at times through the confusion. But then as we are taught by the Holy Spirit, as we are taught by others, we see what, what God is doing and what he proclaims. And we are so transformed by the word of God. And it starts to change how we see ourselves, how we see sin, how we see our world, how we see things around us. And it's also where we find ultimate grace and mercy. And as we grow in the word of God, we see depth and we see meaning. And so we don't touch any dot or any iota. We take the whole word of God and we see it as valuable. Would we see the glory and the beauty and the greatness and the majesty and the love of our God through every page and that we would see Jesus in every line of the word. The fourth lesson that Jesus teaches, and this one was the stinger. This is the one that really, okay, so Jesus gave his, his view on the word, and it's like, okay, he supports the word. That's good. He's a Bible guy. He, he, he's, he's for the Old Testament. The Pharisees, the scribes, and the religious people of the day, would the Jewish people there that would have been listening, good, okay, he supports the word. That's a good thing. Maybe this guy is Messiah. Now we know where he stands when it comes to the word of God. But then he makes this outrageous statement in verse 20. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Folks, number four, perfect righteousness is required for salvation. I mean, what a statement Jesus is saying. Now, today, if you go around and, 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 you know, maybe in a conversation and you're having maybe a rather unholy conversation about someone and say, oh, that person's such a Pharisee. Do we say that in a, as a term of endearment? 
It's like, no, that person's a hypocrite. That person is this Bible thumper that says all of this stuff and then lives another way, or, you know, they're just this holier-than-thou legal. What a Pharisee. Back then, though, however, a Pharisee was, was a compliment. I mean, these were the elite. These were the law keepers. People looked upon them and thought, oh, to be like a Pharisee, to be a Sadducee, to be, see, one of these holy people. They were the most holy. The scribes, what did the scribes do all day? Just sat there all day and copied out the word of God. I mean, how could you sin doing that? And I mean, they're writing the word of God. They just know it. They're putting every dot, every iota in there. I mean, these guys are the holy, 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 holy people. They were committed to keeping the law. They were committed to knowing the law. And they loved to let everyone know it. Yet Jesus is saying, hey, if you want to get to heaven, you've got to be more holy than the Pharisees. You've got to be more holy than the scribes. You've got to be perfect. The people would have heard this and thought, well, there's no hope for me then. Well, Jesus was saying that even all of their good works was not enough. For the Pharisees, their righteousness, it was all external. Later on in Matthew chapter 23, Jesus just hammers the Pharisees. And he says, you guys are like whitewashed tombs. You're all nice and clean and shiny and javexed on the outside, you know, spick and span, cleany, clean. But on the inside, you're like whitewashed tombs. You have the stench of death on the inside. They were all about the externals, and yet their hearts were far from God. And that can so oftentimes happen in church. We can honor God with our lips and say all the right stuff, but our, our hearts can be far from God. And Jesus wasn't concerned, first and foremost, about the externals. He was concerned about the internal. That the inside be changed, the inside be clean, the inside be renewed, and knowing that when that happens, it has an effect then on the external. So Jesus, he was looking for and demanding not just external actions, but an inner righteousness, an inner holiness. Now listen to this, folks. This is awesome. This is so awesome. Don't miss this. Jesus requires full, complete, perfect righteousness. And you know what's so awesome? Is he then supplies it for us. Because he knows we can't do it. It's not in and of ourselves. He supplies it. Any attempt to live a life of victory, any attempt to have your sins forgiven, any attempt to earn your salvation apart from Jesus is doomed right from the start. Stop the try harder and run faster and do more or think that maybe it's a future version of yourself. He will finally love. He won't. He loves you just the way you are today. Broken. Sinful, messed up. Stop the, I've got to try to improve myself program. The requirement that God has, the requirement that Jesus is stating is perfection and you aren't reaching it on your own. Nor am I. It's perfect righteousness. And without a heart change, without change from the inside out, Without this kind of righteousness we're talking about, you're going to hell. That's what God's word says. Jesus says that perfect righteousness is required for eternal life. But you see, the beautiful thing is, is that the glorious message of the gospel is that Christ supplies it. He provides it. 
And it happened by his coming to earth, living as God in the flesh here on this earth, living a perfect life, kept the law, all of it, all 613 commands for 33 and a half years. Now, he would have been accused. He was commonly accused by the Pharisees and religious leaders of breaking the law. He was accused of that over and over again, but he never violated or was disobedient to the law, not to the 613 commands. He did routinely and deliberately break the man-made extra rules and commands and, 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 and different uh, precepts that the Pharisees and the teachers of the law had come up with to kind of just pad their own holiness. He routinely did that. But Jesus kept the law completely. And then he offered himself as a sacrifice, a perfect sacrifice. And if we trust him and receive his righteousness, it is transferred to us. His death on the cross, his sacrifice for our sins, the righteousness, the righteous for the unrighteous. 1 Timothy 3.18 states that the righteous died for the unrighteous to bring us to God. And his suffering, his sacrifice, the God's wrath poured out on him instead of on us, and we so deserve it, but he takes it upon himself. And then three days later, he is victorious over sin and death. And all who place their faith and their trust, confidence completely, 100% in him alone will be saved. Amen? Now you have to be careful because you will talk to certain people and you may talk to people of certain religious traditions and they would say, yes, we believe that Jesus is the way of salvation. We would say that, wouldn't we? That Jesus is the way of salvation. Jesus is the way that we are saved. But the thing that we have to say at the end of it, that salvation is found in Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone. There's other traditions that will say we're saved by Jesus Christ and baptism or and church attendance. We're saved by Jesus and this, 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 and this. And that's just simply not true. We are saved by Jesus and by him alone. And if you have never done that in your life, run to Jesus today. Confess your sin that you have sinned. You have fallen short of God's standard and turn from your sin and receive his forgiveness by faith. And if you've done this already, continue to keep running to Jesus. We need to run to him every day, daily, surrendering our lives, our future, our fears, our hurts, our sins, our issues from the past, the, the things that are in front of us that we're fearful about. We keep running to him and allow his word to dwell richly in our lives and so that his Holy Spirit will fill us anew and afresh and give us the power and the strength that we need day in and day out. Now listen to this. Listen carefully because I don't want to be confusing here. The law, the Old Testament law is still in effect today. It's still in effect. You say, Melvin, what do you mean by that? How is it still in effect? I thought that Jesus was the perfect sacrifice. Jesus meant it so we don't have to have the sacrifices and ceremonies and such. How are you saying it's still in effect? Does that mean we have to keep the Old Testament laws and sacrifices? No. But what you see and what we see by the law, it exposes us as sinners. And Paul wrote in, in Galatians 3, I encourage you to just write down Galatians 3 and read this this next week. And there it says that the law, the Old Testament, served as a tutor, as a guardian that teaches us and exposes our complete hopelessness without, apart from Christ. 
But once we place our faith and our trust for our salvation in Jesus Christ, the law has finished its work. For those who haven't received Christ yet, the law is still in effect. They're still under the burden of the law. But when we come to Christ and see that he was the fulfillment of the law, the law's work has been finished. Romans 10, write this down, read that one too. Oh, an amazing passage of scripture. Christ is the end of the law for all who believe. Christ is the end of the law for all who believe. For the law, it goes on to say, the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ. It's the end of the law. Has the law finished its job in your life, exposing you to be a sinner? And because of that, it has humbled you and brought you to your knees to receive Christ for salvation, but daily for his continued forgiveness and empowerment in our lives. Have you placed your confidence in him? Abandon the try harder, do better, it'll be better tomorrow mentality and run to Jesus for salvation. And today as we prepare ourselves for the Lord's Supper, I'm going to ask you to remain seated and the band is going to come forward and we're going to be singing a song and it's a song of worship and adoration. Oh God, you are so worthy. Look at what you did in sending your son. But we also want to admit that we are needy and we need his forgiveness. We need his power and strength. And if you've never received Christ as Lord and Savior, you can do that today in the quietness of your own heart by turning your life over to him, admitting that you have sinned, you have fallen short and you confess him today to be that complete and full sacrifice for your sins. Receive him today. For the rest of us, we need to examine our hearts. We need to look and to see, are there ways that I'm quenching the Holy Spirit's work in my life because of sin, because I'm choosing to live outside of the word of God in areas and the Holy Spirit is convicted, or maybe that conviction is even growing kind of dull because it's been a part of our lives so much, but there's a distance and there's a lack of peace and there's a lack of joy and you're just going through the spiritual motion and say enough and run to Jesus today for that fresh touch that comes as we confess and as we remind ourselves through the gospel of who he is and what he has done and the forgiveness that is available. God, you're so worthy. You're so good for all that you've done. And God, we're needy. We need you daily and hourly and moment by moment. Meet us here today, we pray.